So, Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord God, that all that we have is the cross. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave your only son. God, I love these people. I love them dearly, but I've got three boys. I don't love them that much to give one of my three. But you loved us so much that you gave your only. Love so amazing, love so divine. Father, I do pray today that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that you would not just make this an exercise in stuffing more information into our minds, but that you would transform us, that you would conform us. Save someone's soul today, Lord God. Bring someone from death to life. It's to that end, Lord God, that I'm available to you. Use me, Lord Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. If you're new with us, we have been in a three-part series that we began on June 12th, just sitting in Luke chapter 15 and walking through a story that has been commonly called uh, the story of the prodigal son. And uh, I shared with you that it, uh, uh, it's really misnamed. It should really be called a dad and two lost sons. Uh, and we're going to see the, the full force of that today as we just rest in the last character of the story that we are going to unpack. In fact, one of the, the, the very framework for our story, for our time together over these three weeks is we've just said, if you look at the story, there are really three key characters. There's the younger brother. In fact, we opened up with him and we looked at him on June 12th. Then there is the father that we looked at uh, on Father's Day last Sunday. And now we conclude this series by looking at the older brother. And one of the things we're going to see here is that the older brother, even though he never left home, is just as lost as his younger brother. And we're going to make specific application as it relates to how the older brother is alive and well in so many of those who come to church Sunday in and Sunday out who hang in the same environment as the heavenly father, but are just as lost as younger brother prodigals. So let me just take some moments during the course of this time to unpack this. But let's read this story one last time. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. If someone could just bring me a little water, I would appreciate it. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Thank you, Pastor. Not many days later, verse 13, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him, literally, in the Greek, and fell on his neck. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, verse 22, the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, verse 25, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you gave me, you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. No orphan wakes up one day and says, today's the day I'm going to get adopted. I'm going to vet some prospective parents. I'm going to ask them some key and critical questions. Uh, I'm going to receive some applications. Um, I'm going to then spend some moments thinking about it, maybe praying about it, and then I'll make my decision. You and I both know that's not how adoption works. Said what happens, it's really the other way around. It's parents who, after giving a lot of thought and a lot of discussion and prayerful consideration, they're the ones who decide one day, we're going to go adopt they spend a lot of time looking around and, um, you know, if you're adopting abroad, you're taking international trips and you're doing due diligence as it relates to uh, various orphanages you may want to consider adopting from and, and, and you're spending a lot of money. Because this not only comes from parental uh, initiative, but in some cases, not all cases, in some cases, you know, if you adopt abroad, like some dear friends of mine did, they adopted from Ethiopia. Uh, it was they spent tens of thousands of dollars. It came at a at a significant cost to them. So adoption works with parental initiative. Sometimes, not all times, but sometimes it's costly. There's a cost here, both financial and and emotional. There's a cost that is, that is involved. And then once you bring that child home, at no point do you return that child as if it was a pair of shoes you didn't like. You don't look at that child now and that you've adopted and you've brought in. You don't look at that child and say, you said a bad word. You did something I don't like. I'm taking you back. No, that child that was brought into your home by your parental initiative at great cost to yourself, that child is secure. It is living in a performance-free zone. Now, what I have just painted for you is salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 says that you and I were adopted into the family of God. 
Now, let me just drop a bombshell on you. This statement is going to open up my inbox to be flooded. But let me just drop a bombshell on you. You didn't choose God. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to get saved today. That wasn't done on your own accord. Ephesians 1 says you were chosen. You were chosen. You were chosen before the foundations of the world. In fact, Ephesians 2 says, here's what you were like before you got saved. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, last time I checked, dead people don't make choices. I've I've done a lot of funerals. Never heard a dead person say, bury me in that suit, not that suit. Now, this cuts against the grain of how we're wired. But you were saved By God's sovereign parental initiative in which he gave you the grace to even see your need for him. So he adopts you. Now, what was the price tag? Oh, it was expensive. Wasn't just tens of thousands of dollars or millions. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God did not give out of his abundance. He gave all that he had. That's why Paul would tell the Corinthians that though God were rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through and by his poverty you might become rich. So we we serve a generous God. Who, who gave all that he had. Now watch this. And now once adopted into the family of God, we are secure. Now I'll spend the next quarter century with you as we're pastoring people unpacking this. But if you get into the kingdom by grace, you can't get out of it by works. That what gets you into the kingdom is the same thing that keeps you in the kingdom, grace. You cannot, cannot, cannot lose your salvation. God does not save you and then call you to put on your tap dancing shoes. And then all of a sudden we do something wrong and then boom, he kicks us out the family. That is antithetical to the nature of God. Now hear me. Grace is not to be taken cheaply. So this is the mystery of salvation. As my grandmama used to say, everybody talking about heaven ain't going. Right? Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. That a change and change. You know, I love Tremaine Hawkins. I was just this week listening to Tremaine. Some of y'all too young to remember to the Bay Area's own Tremaine. But she sang a song years ago. A change, a change has come over me. He's changed my life. And now I'm free. The way that you know that you're saved is you're changed. If you've been saved for 10 years and you've pretty much been the same person for 10 years, you need to check out your salvation. As my pastor used to say, he says, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now since following Jesus, I don't cuss that fast anymore. <laughs> now I'm not green light and cussing. But I love that because he's saying, I'm not perfect yet. I haven't arrived yet. I will never be perfect yet. But as I'm walking with Jesus, I'm seeing change. 
Now, this is important. Because here's what, here's what tends to happen to us. We get saved, saved by grace. We get into the kingdom. We start learning what it means to be a Christian. We start reading our Bible, praying, giving our money, tithing, being generous, serving other people, coming to church. And, and you get a little spiritual mileage under your belt. Here's what starts to happen to us. We start to subtly operate as if God loves me more based on how much and what I do for him. So I just want to set some of us free today because what happens, and I see this happen to so many Christians, we get saved, we, 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 we progress in our journey with Jesus, and then what happens to us, we start to function. Now, we never say it in these terms. We start to function as if there's a varsity side to the kingdom and a JV side to the kingdom. As if there's an A team and a B team. We start getting self-righteous. We start thinking that God loves me more because I've been doing really well in my quiet times. We start thinking that I'm special, that I'm better than that person because of what I do or don't do. And what happens and what I'm describing you, to you here is what I want to call this morning the spirit of the elder brother. And I want you to understand this, and I'm going to unpack it for us this morning. The elder brother is going to come and knock on your door at numerous points in your journey with Jesus, and he will subtly take up residence in your life, and he will subtly sit on the throne of your life, and he will begin to whisper in your ear in very pharisaical tones that you need to perform for God in order to be accepted by God, and if you start walking down that road, what will then happen is you actually think you are better than other people. It's pride. It's self-righteousness. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to begin by giving you the anatomy of the older brother. I, I, I want to show you how you can spot him in your life because he's going to come knocking He's going to come knocking and in subtle ways. I want to show you how you can spot him. And then I want to show you three things that we have to do constantly to evict him from our lives. I want to talk this morning about how to beat up your older brother. Because you have to learn how to bloody his nose. I'm speaking figuratively, not literally. All right. But I want us to deal with this. Now, question on the table is why does Jesus give this story? It's a really good question. When, when, whenever, you, whenever you study the Bible, we have to deal with the issue of context. Why is this story given? Jesus does not give this story for sheer entertainment. In fact, he, he tells us why. And by implication, if you just look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 2, just the opening two verses of the text. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees, these, these are the legalistic, self-righteous people, the Pharisees and the scribes, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. 
So I just want you to see the, the context here. Here's Jesus. He, he's hanging out with folk who are on the wrong side of town. They've never darkened the door of the synagogue or church. They, you know, they're living immoral lives. And, 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 and the self-righteous, legalistic, abundant lifers who've been coming to abundant life for decades, they tripping right now. Jesus, I don't understand this. Why are you at the bar hanging out with them? Why are you, why are you fraternizing with these people? Do do you see the subtle self-righteousness? These people, they're saying in so many words, aren't deserving of your presence or company. As if they are. So Jesus says, let me tell you some stories. And these stories are not meant to entertain but, but, but they're meant to teach a lesson. So he tells them three stories. The first two stories, he tells one of a, a lost sheep. And this shepherd leaves the other 99, goes to find the one. When he finds him in their celebration, a woman has a lost coin. She's digging in between the cushions of the sofa, man. She finds this thing and there's celebration in the house. And now our story is the third story. And it's the most climactic one. Because at the end of the story, he deals with the older brother. Now the younger brother in our, in our story represents the tax collectors. The sinners, the prostitutes, the spiritual quote-unquote riffraff. But he ends this story climactically by dealing with the older brother. And you need to understand this. If you don't understand this, you'll miss the whole thing. The older brother represents the very ones questioning Jesus. And they are the Pharisees and tax collectors. They're the ones who grew up in the church. They're the ones who won the VBS scripture memorizing contest. They're the ones who've been around Jesus for so long. They're the ones who've been walking quote unquote with God, but have totally missed him at the same time time. So what do these older brothers look like? Let me give you three things. First, look at what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller writes, the targets of this story are not wayward sinners, but religious people who do everything the Bible requires. Jesus is pleading not so much with immoral outsiders as with moral insiders. He wants to show them their blindness, narrowness, and self-righteousness, and how these things are destroying both their own souls and the lives of the people around them. It is a mistake then, Keller writes, to think that Jesus tells his story primarily to assure younger brothers of his unconditional love. What Jesus is getting at, what Jesus is getting at are self-righteous people. Because Jesus understands one of the greatest hindrances to the world being attracted to the gospel are self-righteous, legalistic, condemning Christians. Who treat homosexuals as if they're issues and labels and not people made in the Imago Dei. It is the older brothers who will picket gay pride days but not invite them into their homes to share lives with them. So Jesus said, I I need to deal with that. So when we first meet this older brother, younger brothers come home, father puts the best robe on him, which would have been his robe. Father puts his robe on his wayward son, 
They get the DJ, roll out the dance floor, man. You know, they're doing the Cupid shuffle to the right, to the right. They, they're just having a good time. Partying. Electric sliding the whole nine. DJ is doing his thing. Which means Maze featuring Frankly, Frank, Frankie Beverly's there. And before I let go. Anyways, all that stuff is happening. It's a wonderful time. And here's the older brother. He's out in the field. He's been working on his father's estate. He's probably overseeing the servants, managing his father's affairs. The older brother, later on in the conversation, reminds his father, I've never left you. I've been faithful to you. One of the first things we see about the older brother, he's responsible. He shows up when he's supposed to show up. He does his job. He's very dutiful. And yet... What happens here is, as this exchange happens with the older brother and his dad, what you see here is his father has his older brother, has his older son's duty, but he does not have his delight. He has his actions, but he does not have his affections. That the paradox of the older brother is he's in the same vicinity to the father physically, but emotionally and spiritually, he's as far away out in the far country as his younger brother was. What the older brother teaches us is we need to change the way we use the phrase lost people. That lost people are not just out there down the street, round the corner. But you can be in church and just as lost. This is what we see here. You know, it's interesting, man. I've been in pastoral ministry for decades. And what's interesting, it's an interesting dynamic as I've counseled men, husbands, who are cheating on their wives. Interesting dynamic. As I counsel husband, husbands who are cheating on their wives... In most cases, these husbands are coming home at night. They're still going to work. Still paying bills. Still helping out with their kids' homework. Still showing up at the kids' activities. I I, I know of guys who are cheating on their wives who still take their wives out to dinner. But one of the things you understand as this picture starts to emerge is that while their wives have their duty, their mistresses have their delight. That's some of you. You have your quiet time. I mean, like clockwork. You you, you reading, got your one year Bible chugging along, reading. You pray, you come to church, you give your money. But now if I were to ask you, where's your heart? Where's your affections? Where's your delight? I always want to talk from my gut today. Jesus did not die just for your actions. That just as no wife 
would be comfortable with the dichotomy of a husband who gave her actions, but the mistress, his affections. So God is a jealous God. He's just not comfortable with part of you. So how do I know if the elder brother is alive in me? I'm a job driven, duty driven person who gives God my duty. But he ain't got this. There's a second way we can spot him. Brothers outside, he's ticked. He's ticked. Ain't this some? I go to work every morning. I'm showing up. I'm managing your estate. Haven't missed a day. Been faithful. Clocking in, clocking out, and hitting my quiet times. Hold on, man. I'm just, man, you just count on me. I'm showing up. And this joker's been out in the far country. And I love it because the dad comes to him and treats him to come into the party. And, 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 and I love it. The older brother, he just starts to go on this judgmental thing. He says, now when this son of yours... He won't even call his name. Won't even use a familial term of endearment. Won't even refer to him as brother. He says, now when this son of yours, and he just starts running down the list, squandered. Let me just remind you what he did. This is what he did, dad. He wasted your money. How did he waste it? He says he wasted it on prostitute. So not only is he wasteful, he's immoral. I mean, he just clicks down the list. He says, let me just remind you of his faults. How do I know if the older brother spirits in me, you're judgmental, you're judgmental. You are really skilled at picking out the speck in other people's lives that you can't even see the log in yours. Older brothers are like referees. You know what a referee's job is? Point out what's wrong. They get paid. They are professional whistleblowers. That's what they get paid for. That's what they get paid for. Some of you Golden State fans say, "Uh uh-huh, and all of them live in Cleveland. Y'all okay? You know, y'all, you know, I wanted Cormac to come in, you know, really make it upbeat today because I knew we were lamenting here in the Bay. But anyways, so that's what refs do. They blow the whistle. In soccer, they pull out the card. They call the foul. They're always pointing out people's mistakes. I just got to tell you, if there's one thing the church has a monopoly on, it's just judgmental people. If if I can just, I know I'm biased here, but I can just kind of sit on the sofa and pull you into my world. As It just drives me nuts. There's just, there's just several of them in every church I've ever pastored at, man. You could do 20 things right. And you won't get one encouraging email from them. But you do the slightest thing wrong. It's a 20-page manifesto. Some of y'all are married to them. Some of 
It's a bad thing to say I do to a judgmental Pharisee. Older brothers kill relationships. Nothing worse than being married to a judgmental, hypocritical, can't please them for nothing person. That's this dude here. How do I know if the elder brother's on the throne of my life? Critical, fault-finding spirit. Thirdly, they're joyless. Nothing in the exchange. I mean, just just think of, here he is hearing the music. He's he's going, what's going on here? And the servant, if you just read this emotional comment, man, your brother's home. Your long lost brother, he's back, man, and your dad's killed the fattened calf, man, and rolled out the red carpet. It's wonderful. And what does the text say? He began to be angry. The way he talks to his father, it's not the slightest trace of joy. His father says, Come in the house. That's where joy is. He, nothing says he goes in. I can go back to refs. I've never met a joyful referee. <laughs> I've just never met one. I've never seen a game which LeBron James comes down and, okay, uh, Steph Curry shoots, shoots a three-pointer and swishes it. I've never seen, excuse me for that, I've never seen a referee slap high five with another referee and celebrate over it. Have you seen one? And I've also never seen a joyful, self-righteous, judgmental, critical, condemning, older brother spirit person. Just haven't seen it. Older brothers are a drain to be around. They just are. It's negative. Bitter. Some of y'all are going, that's my mother-in-law. Just a drain, man. Just an absolute drain. Now, chances are, if we're going to tell the truth, don't raise your hand. Someone's going, ouch. That's me. Now, let's turn the corner and go, now, how do we deal with him? How do we deal with him? Because I promise you, he's going to show up. He's going to want to shack up with you. How do we deal with him? Three things as we close. The father comes out to the older brother. He says, and he just has one request. Come in the house. Just come in the house. What? Why is that important? Because if the older brother comes in the house, he will experience three things. These three experiences are necessary for dealing with the elder brother experience. The first thing he would have experienced is the presence of the father. 
If the elder brother would have gone in the house, he would have experienced the presence of the father and he would have seen the father's grace. He would have seen the father celebrating and laughing and crying and embracing and and weeping over a, a younger brother prodigal who has now been returned home. He would have seen what real grace and mercy look like. But watch this. Also in the presence of the father, he would have seen his own self-righteousness. What what is being said here is it is impossible to authentically worship God, to be in God's presence and to be an elder brother at the same time. That when we find it's sort of like it's sort of like ever been driving down the street and all of a sudden, you know, you're just driving along, maybe down the freeway, just driving along. And lo and behold, you look at the rearview mirror and there's a cop right behind you. Now, what's the first thing you do when that happens? You ain't worrying about what the other person's doing on the right of you or on the left of you. You ain't worried about what's going on in front of you. You could be going 62 in a 60 and you're going to slow down to about 47. Because the first thing that you do is when you see that cop, the presence of that authority, you now become keenly aware of what you're doing. There's a heightened sense here. What's going on with me? Am I out of alignment? You'll then switch lanes. Put on your turn signal. Now, you ain't never put on a turn signal to switch lanes on the freeway in your life. But all of a sudden, you know, you start walking by the rule here. Why? Because you are aware that you are in the presence of an authority and that now has a direct result on your behavior. You're seeing things in you. You know, in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah sees and catches a glimpse of God and the seraphim just singing, holy, 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 what is the first thing out of his mouth? Woe is me for I, I, not my brother. Not the person I'm sitting on the row with. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When you are in the presence of God, authentically worshiping him, authentically walking with him, you now have a heightened sense of where you are and you see your sin. Not the other person's, your sin, your mess. So just come in the house, older brother. Because I want you to experience the presence of the father. But now what is, what else is in the house? Yeah, the younger brother. This disrespectful, wishing his father were dead. Taking the money, squandering it, immoral, wasteful, now returned home, repentant, being celebrated, younger brother. And here he sees the father lavishing grace on him and mercy on him and pity on him and celebrating him. And in the presence of his younger brother, what is he experiencing? He's experiencing a contrite individual who realizes they have one leg to stand on and that leg is called grace. The problem with elder brothers is elder brothers tend to be very tribal. They tend to run in packs. 
They tend to hang out with other delusional individuals who function as if God now accepts them based on their behavior. What the most redemptive thing that younger brothers can do, older brothers can do, is to hang out with younger brother individuals who are in tune with their own with their own sinfulness, who understand that but for the grace of God, there go I. You need to have some folk in your life like that. You need to have some folk who understand I haven't always dotted all my theological I's. I haven't always crossed my theological T's. You need to hang out with some people who are in tune with the rear view mirrors of their life. Who understand I come from mess. And I've never forgotten that. No, they're not celebrating it. But they walk with a limp. When God wrestled with Jacob and changed his name to Israel, he touched his hip so that he would walk with a limp, realizing that every step he would take in life would be a step of his reminder that I need God. Older brothers have spiritual amnesia. You act like you ain't done nothing. You actually think your stuff doesn't stink. You actually think you're better than somebody. Now forgive me, this is not the most pastoral message. I'm just going to function in the prophetic right now. It is killing the church's witness to the world. It is equally as sinful to have the abortion and to bomb the abortion clinic. We we don't talk about that. God looks at, and I'm not just railing on this one, but it's just the one the moral majority picked out. It is equally reprehensible to God to live in homosexuality Or to be a heterosexual walking with God and self-righteous. Both are sinful. So I had to preach to a bunch of NFL players not not too long ago. And uh, I was, you know, flying from New York, Colorado. And I knew I had a long flight ahead of me. So I just downloaded this documentary. Um, I'd heard about it on the Oscars. It had gotten critical acclaim. It's called The Hunting Ground. It's dealing with sexual assault on college campuses. And so I'm watching this documentary. And uh, right at the end of this documentary, it profiles a football player um, who was was in college at the time who uh, was accused of sexual assault. Man, it's just kind of the longest segment of it. And I'm watching this thing. I'm getting really ticked off at this football player. I'm just going, unbelievable. I can't believe this person, blah, 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 blah. I'm getting really ticked, really ticked, really ticked. Well, I land, get on the bus that they chartered for me and the other, me and all these football players to go from where we were in Denver at the airport. And we were going to go to uh, Colorado Springs where the conference was. And I'm sitting in my seat. And lo and behold, I'm watching walk down the aisle that football player that I had just watched. And I just, if, if this is a safe place, can this be a safe place? This judgmental thing just rose up in me. Can't believe this. How the nerve of him to come to this conference. I just can't, I just can't even believe it. Unbelievable. Well, I, I teach, you know, do some main stage stuff and then I do a session. One of my sessions, he's at the session taking copious notes. When the session's over, he comes to me, makes a beeline for me. 
ask me all these deep theological questions. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. You just answer the question. Just get out of my face, dude. I just saw you on this video, man. I just, oof. Well, he then says to me, can we do dinner? We do dinner. And I'm thinking, surely he ain't going to bring up. And he brings it up. And there's tears in his eyes. And he starts to share with me his narrative. His story. The sense of contrition. And as he's talking and as I'm, I'm getting enmeshed in his personal narrative, I'm feeling this weird concoction of rising compassion and pity and deep, profound conviction and sorrow, not over his mess, but over my judgmental, self-righteous spirit. Now, I'm not here to say whether he did it or whether he, he did not do it. I'm here to speak to myself. It's easy to judge people you don't know. These people have a story. Proximity breeds empathy. The closer you are with people and when you start rubbing shoulders with them and you get enmeshed in their lives, I'm not justifying their stuff, but what it does is it, it creates a sense of compassion and pity in you towards them. The reverse is also true. Distance breeds judgment and suspicion. We can easily throw rocks at somebody down the street round the corner. So why was Jesus so compassionate towards the tax collectors and sinners? Answer, he ate with them. He hung out with them. He did life with them. I had a group of evangelicals ask me one day, would you march with us against this gay pride event that was happening? I says, I will not do that. Why? Because the Bible says... They will recognize you by your love. So I want us to really be aggressive with this. First Corinthians chapter six. I want you to just look at this with me. Because I need to, I need to remember this. You need to remember this. Paul writes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, that's not a comprehensive list. So if your stuff ain't on that list, it ain't comprehensive. All of us got something. You got something and I got something. Now watch this. Here's my favorite phrase. And such were some of you. Paul is saying, don't act like you ain't got a something. You got a something. Now, your something may not be my something, and my something may not be your something, but all God's children got something. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, we have a past. 
keeps us humble is being reminded of that. Finally, we've got to come in the house. What's in the house? There's the Father. When I'm in his presence, boom, I see my stuff. There's the younger brother. The younger brother realizes I got one leg to stand on. It's the grace of God. I need to be around younger brothers. I need to be around folk who are constantly coming back to the grace of God. That helps me. What else is in the house? Joy. Hear me. You can't be judgmental and joyful at the same time. You cannot be condemning and celebrating at the same time. Those two things don't go together. Paul writing to the Romans says this, Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I want you to understand one of the hallmarks of the kingdom of God, of how God operates is he is not a God who wears a scowl on his face, who delights in our falls and in our failures. He is a God of joy that just like in this story, there is singing and dancing and joy. So it is in the kingdom of God. We serve God who doesn't delight in our screw ups, but who delights in himself. And when we fall beckons us to stand, it's sort of like when my kids were learning to walk, man, they would take a few steps and all of a sudden Corey and I are clearing out the living room and moving the furniture. Come on, take another step. And sure enough, it would happen around about step four or five. Boom, they'd fall. And at no given point would Corey and I would go, you, you incompetent. No. We picked them up. We said, you fell. Are you okay? Try it again. And they try it again. And there's joy. And they're celebrating. Look, I want us to be a church that doesn't celebrate people's fallings. But this is a place where people fall. We can talk about it. And then come alongside and say, get up. Try it again. You know what elder brothers do? They rejoice in the fallings. They gossip about the fallings. They take a snapshot of when people fell. They don't let them grow past that. This will not be that church as long as I'm here. Now watch this. As we close, worship team can come. The whole point is, dad, saying to older brothers, come in the house. Look, 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 look at how it ends. Verse 31. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother. Your, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and was found. That's how it ends. Well, you want to go, wait, 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 wait. Did he come in? This thing ends like the book of Jonah. Just this abrupt ending. Does he come in? You know why Jesus doesn't answer that? Because who is it for? Older brother, self-righteous, Pharisees, and he ends it abruptly so that each Pharisee could write his alternate ending. It is as if he ends it abruptly to leave them with the question, will you come in? The father is waiting on you to celebrate with you, not to condemn you. He wants to give you a new spirit. Will you come in the house?
So I'm, I'm going to give the toughest altar call I've ever given in my life. Giving altar calls to younger brothers to come forward, easy. But making an altar call for older brothers who wrestle with a judgmental spirit, who, re- who wrestle with being joyless, who, represent with being, who wrestle with being duty and job-driven, those are the hardest ones to get to come to the altar. But I want to make a call for you. If as this message was going forth, there's just this thing in you that goes, yeah, I think that's me. I see the elder brother in me, and I want to repent of that. In just a few moments, I'm going to make a call for elder brothers. Religious people who just say, I struggle with being judgmental. I struggle with pointing out the faults in other people. Here's what I want you to know. The same grace that's available for younger brothers is available for you. Will you come in the house? Because there's joy here. There's not condemnation. There's celebration here. There's grace here. There's mercy here. Will you have the sense enough to know I need that same grace and mercy? Now, Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, you know I can speak so pointedly about this because it takes one to know one. You know my own struggles with being judgmental and critical and Oh, how I feel the elder brother from time to time in my own life. And I've got to constantly repent. I've got to constantly go to war with him. I've got to constantly remind myself that I need daily doses, seconds and thirds and fourths of your grace. Now, Father, I do pray for those who are here today, Lord God, who would say, yep, that's me. That's, that's me. That's me. I pray that you'd give them the humility to come to the altar. And to, just, and to just name it and cast it out before you in the name of Jesus. Do it, we pray. Amen.